Take out a Bible, open it to Exodus chapter 1. What does it mean to carry a burden or to be afflicted? Guessing many of us have ideas that are conjured to mind. I give you a funny illustration to help with the picture. Years ago, while serving in youth ministry, we were backpacking with some teenagers in Colorado. Another youth leader, Dave, and I took to playing a little game. Every time we stopped for waters, we picked out two kids who were particularly strong, and we began adding rocks to their backpacks. It's kind of a fun game at first, till you realize these kids are totally unaware of how much weight we're adding to their bags, which only makes you bolder. So you add larger rocks to their backpacks, bigger and bigger rocks. Here's the crazy part. They never noticed. The second night we felt bad about it, confessed, and they took them to their bags and began to unload like 20, 25 pounds of rock out of their bags. These kids totally unaware of what they'd been carrying. Just to be clear, I'm not celebrating our prank. I'm confessing my immature nature. But the reality is we added burdens to these kids. It's a lighthearted example. There are far more serious ones to be considered. But their journey was made harder because we made it harder for them. What I want to suggest to you now is as we step into the book of Exodus, your life is burdened. It's made more difficult. And not just because people put rocks in your bags, but because inherently you have an accuser, you have an opposer, there is one standing against you in life. Satan. It's one of the realities we'll lean into as we get to the book of Exodus. Is this accuser who works against us to imprison us, to enslave us. It's one of the realities we'll see this morning. Having introduced the book of Exodus this morning, we're going to look at the first two chapters this morning. And what we're going to find, there are two arcs at play here. There are two themes that will show up in these two chapters that are broadly expressed other places in Scripture. We find them both here. They set up the story of the Exodus. The first is burdens, it's afflictions. You might remember if you were here last week, I referenced Genesis 3. That one of the patterns you see in Scripture is the serpent afflicting or burdening God's people. And then God raising up a deliverer. We'll see that in the text this morning. We'll see Satan burdening the people of God attempting to thwart the plan of God. And beloved, we should pick up that God gives us narrative. He gives us story so that we would see similarities in our own lives. We might pick up that if this is very real reality in the book of Exodus, it's probably very real in your life too. Which brings us to the second theme we need to see this morning. One we'll see repeated in the book of Exodus, it might seem simple, 
But it's this. God sees our burdens. He sees our afflictions. He hears our moans, our cries, our whimpers. Beloved, one of the great lies Satan whispers to you regularly is that you're alone. That you're isolated. That nobody knows, nobody understands, nobody sees. Couldn't be further from what the Scripture declares to you about what the truth is. And the truth declared rightly is that God sees everything God knows. As we get to the end, we're going to have to reconcile that a little bit. Because some of us are entirely uncomfortable with the reality that God could know your burden and leave you there. But when we remember that the Israelites were in slavery for 400 years, that's like seven or eight generations, we should be reminded that God often has a far, far different purpose than what we have for our life. But we'll land there here in a while. So if we jump towards the text, let's just take a moment just to pray about our time together in the Word. Gracious Father, thank You for gathering us together this morning. Thank You for Your Word, the Old Testament and the New. Father, You use Your Word to build Your people, to feed Your people, to sustain Your people. Father, we believe in it. We believe it's inspired. We believe it's authoritative. Father, we believe it's sufficient. Father, to to meet our needs. So, Father, as we're gathered together this morning where there are those who are struggling, who are suffering, who need to be reminded of who you are, who need to be reminded that you know everything about their situation, who need to be reminded that you have an ultimate plan to deliver them through the death of Jesus Christ. Father, this morning, would you grant us the eyes to see and ears to hear, would you open our hearts and minds that we might receive your truth, God, that you might breathe afresh into our souls. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Exodus 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We see a transition in the text. Joseph and his family have come to Egypt. They've prospered in Egypt. And now a new king does not know who Joseph is. Doesn't know their family history. Doesn't know how they got there. Let's see what happens. Verses 9 through 11. And he says to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. The king, as Moses writes, the Pharaoh. We should note The text doesn't give us his name. Historically, you can figure it out. Lots of commentaries will 
pinpoint who this particular person is. But it's an interesting reminder that this story isn't about Moses or even the Israelites or even the Egyptians. It's about the Lord God who's faithful. This Pharaoh decides there's too many Israelites. He's concerned for his own well-being, so he sets out to oppress the people of God. And according to verse 11, he sets out to afflict them with heavy burdens. We find as we work through chapter 1, he has three strategies. Verses 13 and 14, he enslaves the people. He takes all of them, makes them slaves, and sets them about making bricks. A hard task. Deuteronomy later, Moses will talk about them being set to the work of living in a furnace. It's not given a pretty picture. Verse 14 notes that he worked them ruthlessly. That's only the first burden. We see the second burden placed on them in verses 15 through 20. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was Shipra and the other was Pua. Again, we should pause for a moment. The text doesn't tell us the name of the Pharaoh, but does tell us the name of the midwives. Shipra and Pua. We ought to recognize God's about something unique. He's leaving out the important people and he's raising up his people. We ought to recognize that the Lord is going to use these two to deliver Moses. He's going to use these two women. And in fact, if you really dig into the story of Exodus, it is amazing the women that God uses faithfully to oppose the serpent. A strong, strong contrast from what you see in Genesis. You have these two midwives raised by God to deliver his people. Let's continue on verse 16. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded them, but let the male children live. Pharaoh declared infanticide. We would call it abortion. You come across a male baby, kill it. We don't want them to grow into an army. We don't want them to have strength. If they have female children, if they have women, we'll put them to work. This is his strategy, his second burden he wants to place on the people. But the midwives didn't do as he commanded, which causes Pharaoh to inflict a third burden. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. If you're paying attention to the text, it's commanded to all the people. This isn't a midwife text. This is a, you find a Hebrew male walking through the village, chuck him in the river kind of text. This is a, all Egyptians, be mindful of the fact, this is my decree, don't let any of them live. Slaughter the male babies. That ought to sound familiar. We see that under King Herod. This is a, a plot, a plan, a ploy Satan has used. Uses it again under the times of Jesus. 
But what we see here is heavy burdens placed on the people of God. And yet even in their trials, even under heavy affliction, we should not miss that the Lord God is faithful. He's raising up deliverers. He's building his people. Consider Moses' recap back in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. But this is the first big arc, the first big movement we see in the book of Exodus. That there's an opposition to God's people. It shouldn't surprise us. We're to be reminded that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Such that when we lean into this story, we should see it's not just Pharaoh. It's Satan. And beloved, it is a gift when we see that in this kind of a narrative. Because it ought to slow us down. It ought to cause us to pause. To look at opposition in our own lives. To see and to recognize that Satan is alive and that he's active. And that he's plotting against believers. To distract us from the mission of God, from the purpose of God. And he's got lots of plans and schemes to do it. Above some of you know full well the full threat and the temptation of moral failure. It creeps at your door, it's beckoning on you, and you know it's there. Satan every time. And some of you, some of you live with a moral self-righteousness at your door. We should miss that the Bible would say, even in the book of Joshua, do not part to the left or to the right. Oh, there is a moral bankruptcy that we can flee to, but there's a moral self-righteousness where we believe we're better than. That is just as errant, just as despicable, and just as necessary to cause the death of Jesus Christ. But don't just think it's sinners that that cause Jesus' death. It's all of us. We, We should see that Satan has multiple plans for us. He has schemes. He knows the temptation of your soul. And he's got strings he could pull every single day. We got to realize that. We've got a chance to fight it. We've got a chance to spiritually make our stand. That's the argument out of Ephesians 6. That you need to be prepared for spiritual battle so you can make your stand. 
He's alive and well. Brings us to chapter 2. To turn to chapter 2, let me pause again and say this. One of the challenges of narrative, uh, as we step into Exodus, I'm going to have to, I'll say this a couple of times. Oftentimes in narrative, what you find is you get a really long story that makes a point. Which leaves me in a position to decide, are we going to read the text or am I going to summarize it? And I want you to know up front, it's always a hard challenge. It's more than I'm reading chapter 2. Because it's got a lot of rich foreshadowing. It's chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a, a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. In the midst of this burden, these three burdens that Pharaoh is oppressing God's people with, chapter 2 interjects with a story of God's faithfulness. Lest you believe that the only thing going on is Satan's activity, God steps in with a story to show you his narrative, which we also ought to be encouraged by. At this moment, God intervenes with a story to tell you he's raising up a deliverer. And so far what Moses, the author, is trying to tell us is that he's an ordinary kid. The text tells us he's a fine child. It could be used to mean he's beautiful, but more likely means he's healthy. What stands out about this is not that Moses was born. What stands out about Moses' story is God's providential hand of carrying him. But the mistake we often make as believers is we think people are better than us. We sit in our little spot in our happy little pew. We go, yeah, I can never be like that guy. He's better than me. I can never be like her. She's so much more disciplined. I can never be like Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Have you seen their stories? I can never be like Moses. And yet when you actually step into the narrative, you see these as broken people. We preach through the book of Genesis. We know the brokenness of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when we come to Moses, beloved, it's not about Moses being the perfect guy. It's about God protecting him. It's about God writing the same story in Moses he's writing in you. He's taking a broken person he intends to use. Moses is born. His mom hides him for three months, lest he be thrown into the river. Finally, she throws him into the river in a basket. And we see the Lord is at work. If you jump into Hebrews, the 11th chapter, you would find the author of the book of Hebrews testifies that it's by faith that Moses' parents hid him. And by faith, they opposed the Pharaoh's edict. And by faith, they placed him in the water. By faith, they entrust God to all this. 
So is God verbally leading in this? I don't know. But if by faith they do this, they're believing God has a plan. Verse 4. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds, sent her servant woman over, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Now standing here, we can see God's providential hand in this. We can see God raising up his sister to go stand. We can see the God working in this handmaid to bring the baby to the daughter. We can see the daughter having favor and not saying we should, we should kill this baby. We should keep this baby. We can see God's hand in the sister proclaiming, should we go get a nurse so that the baby can eat? The daughter of Pharaoh's heart was soft. These aren't accidents. Moses wasn't lucky. God was providentially at work. The text continues, verse 9. Pharaoh's daughter says to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. What we should see about the life of Moses to this point is that God is at work in him. God's at work raising up a deliverer for his people. God's at work delivering his people. And we should see all the deliverers who helped deliver Moses. We should be mindful of all of the things that have come to be to be reminded that God's plan is big. And Moses doesn't happen if Shipper and Pua don't happen. We should see the faithfulness of God's people at play so that God's plan can work. Verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, by the way, Stephen in Acts 7 tells us he's about 40 when this happens. He went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. A couple of thoughts. Moses grow, grew up knowing he was different. Moses would have known his skin tone was different than their skin tone. He knew he was different, but he knew he was privileged. You study the story of Moses, you'd find there's lots of writings of Josephus, a Hebrew historian. Josephus suggests that Moses actually led the, the Egyptian army for a season. 
He was a well-accomplished man at this point. And yet when he sees his people, he sees their burdens. We should see in Moses the heart of God. That God is at work in his people, giving them his heart. We should be like Moses, looking at the people and seeing their burdens. But secondly, we should also see and be reminded that Moses was a murderer. Just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was not a perfect man. God doesn't pick perfect people, but he does perfectly pick people. Let's keep going, verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the, in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Answer Pharaoh. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. Verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses is like giving us this whole story in this chapter. Now it gives us his marriage. Verse 16. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water, filled the troughs of water, filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came, drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses, content to dwell with the man, he gave Moses his daughter, Sipporah, She gave birth to a son, and they called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Which brings us to the last three verses in chapter 2, where we're going to hone in on. Verse 23. During those many days, during those many days, we need to be reminded the Egyptians are under heavy burdens. We need to be reminded that during those many days, they're enslaved and making bricks. We need to be reminded that in those many days, there are babies that are being destroyed, families that are being persecuted. We need to be reminded that life for an Israelite in Egypt was awful. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Beloved, we need to see God's people crying. Overwhelmed burdened. We need to see God's people putting their petitions before God for generations. 
so that you would sit down and you would wail and you would cry and your grandmother would say, my grandmother did that too. This is not a a short season. It's a long season. And yet when we come to verse 24, we find this. It's so good and can be uncomforting. And God heard their groaning. God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God heard their groaning. We come back all the way through chapter 2. We come back into chapter 1. We see the Israelites enslaved in that very first generation. God heard their groaning. Moses isn't trying to suggest that 400 years of groaning is what got God's attention. 370 years of groaning got God's attention. 200 years of groaning got God's attention. 100 years of groaning. God needed to hear 1.3 million complaints before He jumps in. Now what you're left to see is that God heard their groaning. God knew the condition of His people. He knew their hearts. He knew they were wrecked. He knew they were barely hanging on. And all the while, God's remembering His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God knew. One of my favorite prayers in the Scriptures is when Jesus prays outside the tomb of Lazarus. Because Jesus prays to His Father and says, Father, thank You for listening to me. And I know You always do. Beloved, in the dark night of the soul in my life, that's my prayer. God, thank You for hearing me. I know you always do. That's often the sustaining power of God's people. To know that He's always listening. He's always hearing. He knows our condition. One of my favorite gospel stories is in John 5. Jesus healing a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. The text says, When Jesus saw him lying there and he knew he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus knew he'd been there for a long time. Another version says Jesus knew his condition. It's the idea that Jesus knew everything about this guy. And what's strange about John 5, if you really hone into that, is that Jesus had probably walked by the pool of Bethesda a thousand times. And on this day, 
Knowing his condition, he asked them, do you want to be healed? On this day, there's something different. It's like the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus walks up and says, you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Jesus knows her condition. She goes back into town and says, there's a man who knew everything I ever did. Have you ever paused to think about the fact that Jesus knew her suffering? That that's not like tattletale, tattletale. Hey, let me tell you how awful you are. But that might actually be a testimony of, I know the hopelessness of your heart. I know the pain. I know where you've gone to look for answers and how it's fallen short. Jesus knew her condition. He knew the paralytic's condition. And he knows the condition of the Israelites. Well, this morning as we consider these two movements, these two arcs in Exodus 1 and 2, we see that Satan burdens people. And we see that God sees it. We need to be reminded of those two arcs. We need to be reminded that Satan is still active, burdening you. Will he be triumphant? Nick, we should pay. Will Satan be triumphant? Never. No. But if we're honest, it could feel that way. I mean, we should not move past the fact that the Israelites were slaves for 400 years. I mean, there's got to be five or six generations in there that were iffy. I don't know. I thought we'd be delivered by now. I thought I'd be over this. I thought we'd be through it. And yet, beloved, what we find when we see the narrative of it all is that God is good and that God is sovereign. And if we even lean into the story, we see blessing, we see joy, even in the midst of oppression. We see God sustaining and holding His people even in the midst of oppression. And if that's what your life feels like, and you're here this morning thinking to yourself, does anybody know the oppression I feel? I want to argue with you that God does. He knows. And then I want to remind you that His thoughts are not your thoughts. And His ways are not your ways. I started with a backpacking illustration. I'll end with another. My family loves going to national parks. We like hiking. We love seeing the world that God made for us to enjoy. He's made some incredible things. One of the lessons about our trips that we've kind of learned that I'm trying to impress into my kids that we talk about a lot, especially while on a difficult hike, is the reality that the aim of a hike isn't always the journey. Sometimes it's the destination. Now, there are hikes we go on that are fun. 
And there's some hikes we go on that aren't. But one of the reasons why you do it is for the destination. It's not about the means. Sometimes it's about the ends. Think back to our most recent trip. A two-hour hike in the sand in 100-degree weather. Up and over a couple of boulder fields. It wasn't always fun. Some in our group grumbled a lot. I can testify against them they're not here. But you know what the sweetness was? When we got to our destination, every person on our trip said, this was so worth it. So worth it. I'm glad we did that, Dad. Friends, I don't know what your burdens are. I don't know what your afflictions are. But I can say these three things. The Lord sees you. The Lord has a plan to deliver you. It may be an eternity. And when you reach the final destination, you will stop and you'll go, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. The uphills, the downhills, the through the stands, the, the rock, the rocks in your shoes, the blisters, the aches, the pains, the agonies, the someday the trials of this world will not compare to the immeasurable glory that will be ours in Christ Jesus. Someday, beloved, I, I could just tell you, when you stand before your Father, it'll all be worth it. When we lean into these arcs and Exodus, and we'll see them again. Exodus is an incredibly repetitive book. We're reminded that Satan burdens God's people. We're reminded that God sees it all. So that you might be encouraged. That you might have endurance. And that you might continue to walk faithfully, trusting His plan. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, as we're gathered together this morning, I am reminded that some of us are on pretty waterfall hikes and that some of us are on torturous desert walks. Father, you have many of us in very different places. And yet, Father, we know that you are sovereign and that you are good. Father, we can be encouraged, we can be edified looking even at this short glimpse of the life of Moses to see providentially how you took care of him. Father, we might not have pause and stop and see how the providential ways you've taken care of us. Father, as we move through this book, we're going to continue to see hardship. And hardship in a way that makes light of what we feel like is epic. Father, for I can grumble and complain about small uncomforts in my life. 
And when we stop and compare them to generational slavery and your ability to sustain your people through that, would you just remind us, God, that you're enough? And Father, for those of us that are struggling today, would you just remind us from your word that you see us, that you know our condition, and that though your timing is different than our timing, you have a total and a complete plan to completely redeem and deliver us for your glory. Can we hold on and trust you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.